Welcome back to the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. We are here today with a very special edition. Um, Instead of talking about the Easter sermon from this Sunday, uh, we are going to talk about something that we have been wanting to talk about for a very long time. Um, In the coming weeks, we are going to be, as part of our church service, walking through um, a study done by Ligonier Ministries, uh, partnered with Lifeway Research. Every year they do a thing called the State of Theology, where they ask about 35 specific questions around theology that we would see as core to our faith, and they reveal the results of how both uh, the secular world around us answers those questions and specifically how evangelicals answer this question. And so as we will see, um, even evangelicals falter and uh, answer these questions in pretty seemingly unbiblical ways. And so what we want to tackle on today's podcast is how is that possible? How do quote-unquote evangelicals answer questions in a way that would make them not evangelical by definition? And even more to the point, what is an evangelical? Um, How would we define the word evangelical? And why is that even important for us today? And so uh, over the next several minutes, our goal is to hopefully helpfully explain what an evangelical is, uh, where that word came from, and why there's a lot of confusion uh, around that. And so uh, I'm here with Tyler Hurst, and I'm just going to kind of turn it over and say, Tyler, where did the word evangelical come from? And what does it mean? Uh, well, there's a lot of debate about how to define evangelical. Uh, however, one of the books that I have found really helpful in looking at this, um, historian uh, and evangelical, Thomas Kidd, has written in the last couple of years a book titled Who is an Evangelical? And uh, Kidd is a fantastic Uh, well-known historian who does really good research, and he actually points back to the word evangelical first being used uh, in 1807. Uh, And originally it was used to describe this movement of Christians that crossed over denominations and distinctive uh, had distinctive beliefs, specifically one belief that he highlights uh, is being born again or having the new birth. And he associates this most in terms of the history with um, a evangelist named George Whitfield. So even before you have a group naming themselves or self-identifying as evangelicals, more simply, what does the word evangelical mean? It it comes from a Greek word. Yeah, yeah. So evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means uh, gospel or good news. So it's actually where we get our word evangelize. Uh, And essentially, that's where all of this stuff about evangelical starts, is that um, I believe it's Martin Luther is one of the first people to use it, though he uses a German version of the word that I'm not even going to try and pronounce. But essentially, Luther and the Reformers wanted um, people to look at their movement and think of them as gospel people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so- and I think that's, that's I even address that because I think it's so important that mm-hmm. people who are calling themselves gospel people mm-hmm. um, are narrowing down what they mean to some specific things. Yeah. That they're not saying that this is a group of people who all shop at Costco. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not saying that they're a group of people who 
all happen to enjoy rollerblading. Mm-hmm. They're self-identifying as gospel people, mm-hmm. um, evangelicals. And so um, I'll, I'll let you continue on, but I, I think I want to come back to that here in a little bit as we begin to narrow down um, some of the confusion around this word. Yeah, so it starts off as uh, it was what we would usually call the Reformed theology. Evangelical starts off as uh, separating Protestants from Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, so Catholics were people who did not uh, hold to the gospel at that time, and Luther pushing back against that uh, says, no, we want to be people who who hold firmly to the gospel, put the gospel at the middle, at the center. Uh, and so he wants to be known for that. And So, so that's interesting. Yeah. You think mm-hmm. about the word Protestant. Mm-hmm. So that's the Protestant Reformation. They mm-hmm. were protesting um, against... The Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. So, so the word Protestant mm-hmm. is expressly talking about something that they are against. Mm-hmm. Um, to call yourself then a gospel person is more along the lines of what we're for. Yeah. Or you could think of it in terms of belief versus action, right? Mm-hmm. So what Luther is doing is he is protesting. That is the action he is taking. But what is he protesting? Well, the belief that the gospel is supposed to be fundamental and center to what a Christian is. Right. So... Uh, yeah, so you have uh, the reformers using the term evangelical uh, as as we are gospel people, defining themselves that way, wanting to make that the mark. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, one of the things you have to think about is how you name something is critical mm-hmm. to, to what that thing becomes. Movements that are defined by their names uh, or people who get to define or redefine the name of movement, like in a little bit we'll talk about fundamentalism and what that means and what it used to mean. Uh, if you can either pick the name of the movement or redefine the name of a movement, you get to kind of display the image or control the image. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I mean, in one sense, uh, Luther lost the PR battle because we now call it the Protestant Reformation rather than the Evangelical Reformation, Mm -hmm. uh, which probably would paint a completely different picture uh, for people if that's how it was known. Um, But then as uh, Protestant Christianity develops, what ends up happening is uh, it develops primarily in these places that become uh, culturally Christian. And because of that, people are not experiencing what we would call conversion. So we, as Baptists, talk a lot about conversion. Um, We often like to give away this little yellow book written by Michael Lawrence on conversion. And so evangelicals are the the evangelicals who develop where we get the term, uh, where people who wanted to put conversion back at into the understanding of what it meant to be a gospel person. Mm -hmm. To be a gospel person is to encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ and to convert, repent, turn, uh, and live your life in light of that gospel. Yeah. So if we were to just stop right there, I think we'd be pretty pumped about that understanding of evangelicalism. Yeah, I'm all for it. It's like, that's, yeah, we are that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't remain that way. Right. So where we are today, there's a lot of confusion around what the word evangelical means. That's why we're even doing this podcast, because... There are so many people that would call themselves evangelicals that actually shouldn't. Um, And there's people who should call themselves evangelicals who who don't don't. get the opportunity to. Right. So um, how did we get here? What, where did this all go wrong from the definition that you just gave? Um, 
Where did it go sideways? Yeah, so for evangelicals and evangelicalism, uh, things basically head on that trajectory where um, to be an evangelical is to to make the gospel center, um, to therefore hold conversion is really important. And that continues from early America. Uh, we could we could date it at George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, who are two contemporaries, um, and they are pre-American um, Revolution. So that's when America is still a colony all the way up uh, to what becomes known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Uh, And here's where things start to go awry, and we get into all the confusion we run into about evangelicals. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially what happens uh, is in the late 1800s, early 1900s, different views about Christianity and specifically about the Bible Mm -hmm. start to arise. Right. So you've got Protestant liberalism coming in. Yeah. And one of the primary marks of Protestant liberalism is not just a different view about the Bible, but specifically questioning the inspiration of the Bible, uh, the inerrancy of the Bible. So the inspiration is um, where does the Bible fundamentally come from? And you and I uh, would say it is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. And uh, let's see, that's inspiration. I would say as well, uh, inerrancy is does the Bible contain any factual errors? And specifically, we could say, does it contain any errors about the way the world is, um, say, scientific errors, you might say. Uh, and so people start debating, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and saying like, hey, when was the earth made? How old is it? How does evolution play into all this sort of thing? All of that kind of stuff. So just to your point on inspiration, mm-hmm. um, we believe, you know, in the inspiration of Scripture from the Holy Spirit, Second uh, Peter chapter 1 Uh, Starting in verse 20, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So that is um, an evangelical understanding of inspiration, that uh, the Bible wasn't just dropped from heaven as is, it was written by men but as they were carried along or inspired by the Holy Spirit. Which logically implies the inerrancy of Scripture. Yes. Because God cannot lie, and if God can get something wrong, we're all in a lot of trouble. Bingo. Uh, so if God is the one who f- is the fundamental bedrock source of the Scriptures, then the Scriptures have to be accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we can have conversations about genre, and maybe there are certain genres, like, say, the Psalms talk about a strong man pulling the sun across the sky, uh, that's clearly poetic language. And so Mm -hmm. we don't actually believe that a strong man pulls the sun across the sky. Psalm 19. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, that doesn't make it inaccurate. So it's still accurate within the framework of the poetic genre. Right. Anyway, so they question things like that. Along with questioning inerrancy comes a lot of questions about uh, the miracles in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, Virgin birth. Virgin birth, yes, is a big one, walking on water. Uh, And then as well, you get questions about the authorship of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So for example, the book of Isaiah, how many people wrote that? Um, So the primary view of the liberal um, uh, Christians and Protestants was that there were four authors of the book of Isaiah Mm -hmm. and four authors that comprise the community of the authorship of the book of Genesis as well. Uh, So what you end up having is in the 1920s, uh, 
from Biola University, where I graduated from, you have a businessman fund the publication of what's called the Fundamentals, which were uh, about 50 articles that they just shipped all over America that were authored by some of the best scholars of the time um, from an evangelical or a conservative, we could say at this point, a conservative Christian position, defending the Bible, defending inspiration of the Bible, inerrancy of the Bible, virgin birth, all sorts of other things, and they shipped them all across the country. Right, so at that point, you've got Mm -hmm. a group of people who are are saying, we're not Catholic, Mm -hmm. but they're starting to put out all of these viewpoints that Mm -hmm. are are not seemingly Christian. Right. Um, so then you've got a, uh, another response to that in saying, ah, we're, we're also not Catholic. We're Protestant, mm-hmm. but these people are calling themselves Protestant, but they don't hold to the same things we do. Right. So thus the, the fundamentals. So Tommy Kidd says about this, he says, the fund- fundamentalist movement attempted to codify the non-negotiables of evangelical doctrine or the fundamentals in the face of the modernist, which some people would call the liberal, mm-hmm. challenge. Um, and then what ends up... So this is the primary aspect of fundamentalism is actually defense of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we were to list, um, I actually have a copy of the fundamentals from when I was at Biola. And if I brought them in, um, Drew and I, uh, with our education would actually recognize very few of the names of the authors. Um, cause most Christians are not, uh, you know, famous and their names don't get carried down, but there are a number of authors we would recognize. B.B. Warfield, R.A. Torrey, uh, the son of Charles Spurgeon, Thomas Spurgeon, um, Arthur T. Pearson, uh, C.I. Schofield, G.K. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, um, as well. There were reprints in the fundamentals of uh, the Puritan Thomas Boston and J.C. Ryle. Mm-hmm. Now, what ends up happening is the fundamentals are actually very uh, academic defense of the Bible, but the uh, people who took on the moniker, the name fundamentalist, um, at some point they started to argue not just theologically, but also things about things taking place in society and fundamentally things taking place in the public school system in America. Mm -hmm. And this comes to a head in the state of Tennessee with what's called the Scopes Trial, where a science professor named John Scopes uh, decided he was going to teach evolution in a Tennessee public high school against Tennessee state law. And so William Jennings Bryan, who oddly enough is not actually a fundamentalist, he's actually a social gospel guy who had a very high uh, moralistic impulse to himself and read certain parts of the Bible uh, extremely literally. Uh, So when I mentioned, the reason why I mentioned genre earlier is because um, he did not take genre into account with a lot of his readings. Anyway, so he was a um, sort of a failed political figure by a number of accounts, but he ends up being the primary lawyer prosecuting John Scopes, arguing that evolution should not be taught in the public schools. And he does an awful job. Um, This high school uh, science teacher asks him basic scientific questions that he cannot answer, um, and his argument is not rational, it's not logical, it actually doesn't uh, deal with the best biblical scholarship or scientific scholarship of his day. It was just not very good. Now, the problem is the Scopes trial is one of the widest publicized events of that decade. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, about 
20 years after the Scopes trial, there would be a movie made titled Inherit the Wind. Uh, And Inherit the Wind sort of did a caricature of the Scopes trial and made William Jennings Bryan look even worse than he did in real life. And the result of this was that the public view of what a evangelical or a fundamentalist was became this really odd figure, William Jennings Bryan, who is like a weird amalgam of political ambition, uh, strange political views, strange theological views, um, but very uh, combative. Mm-hmm. And so you end up having that take place, um, which leads to where we are today, where evangelicals are known a lot for uh, political engagement. Mm-hmm. So just rewinding a little bit, um, you know, producing this list of fundamentals, mm-hmm. it's not a one-to-one thing. Um, they're not identical, mm-hmm. but in many ways, this is what Christians have done throughout Christian history. Um, there arises some kind of heresy or odd belief system, and then uh, in Christian history, there's a council that's put together mm-hmm. that produces uh, a statement of faith or a creed mm-hmm. uh, of some sort. So, with the Christological heresies, you end up getting, you know, the Apostles' Creed, yeah. um, you know, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Nicene Creed. They're responding to specific heresy um, in Christology. Fast forward to what we just talked about. In many ways, this is the same thing. You've got the, this group of people that's calling themselves. Protestant, mm-hmm. who don't hold to some core truths that Protestants believe. And right. So you get a response of this book, which is a little more fleshed out than, say, a creed would be, and more general in scope. But essentially, that's what you have. You have a mm-hmm. group of people saying, no, that's not how we define ourselves. Here is how we define ourselves. Mm-hmm. So there becomes confusion um, around the, the scopes trial about who an evangelical is or who the fundamentalists are. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we get to today? How has that continued to spread and the word evangelical be misunderstood? So essentially because of uh, the elite media's coverage of the Scopes trial uh, and then this film made um, after it, you end up having the fundamentalists, quote unquote, lose the PR battle. Mm-hmm. The they no longer get to control how their um, how their actions, their writings, those things are defined, and so what they end up doing is they sort of splinter off, and what we end up getting is the modern evangelical movement, which you can sort of classify in three groups that contrast themselves with the with what are still contemporary fundamentalists. So even though the fundamentalists lost the PR battle, there are still some people that would sort of take that moniker upon themselves. So I think of um, uh, during the heyday of the fundamentalists, you would have guys like Jerry Falwell, Mm -hmm. uh, and then the moral majority coming after or out of him would still be classified as fundamentalists, and he ends up founding Liberty University. So you could still sort of classify that as a fundamentalist Christian, but fundamentalist in terms of the sort of aggression, combativeness, um, highly conservative, uh, things like that. The non-fundamentalist groups would be the neo-evangelicals, contemporary Pentecostals, and then you sort of have this hard-to-classify other group. Uh, And one of the confusions that we have is these three non-fundamentalist groups all get titled evangelicals when you read the New York Times. Right. 
So politically speaking, you've got politicians who look at this group uh, and say, oh, those are people who kind of seem to maybe hold to the same beliefs. Mm -hmm. We see them as a voting block. Right. And we're going to cater to this voting block and we're just going to call them all evangelicals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's basically what... Theological understanding of what we mean by that term. Right. So it might be helpful at this point um, to talk about how we might differ from some of these guys. Sure. Um, so I would say the neo-evangelicals, um, we could classify in a couple of different ways. We've got John Gershner, Harold J. Ockengay, uh, and Carl F.H. Henry kind of all fit into that category. And those would be the guys we're closest to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Carl F.H. Henry was a big influence on Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary, uh, and we're a Southern Baptist church. Um, John Gershner was a huge influence on R.C. Sproul, who's a favorite theologian here. Um, we regularly talk about uh, the late R.C. Sproul's books, um, The Holiness of God and Chosen by God. Um However, we would differ pretty dramatically from, say, Pentecostals associated with the Azusa Street Revival, which their sort of today's instantiation of the Pentecostals would be things like Bethel Church uh, in Redding, California, uh, which is a charismatic Pentecostal church, or, say, the Hillsong Movement. Right. Um, And then, as well, we would have— So um, we would look at those groups, mm -hmm. uh, the ones you just talked about, Mm -hmm. and we would say— According to, to what we understand evangelicalism to be, we don't understand those people as evangelicals, even mm-hmm. though, um, politically speaking, the New York Times would see them as evangelical and call them evangelical. Right, right. Yeah, so if you, um, if the pastor of Bethel Church came out and said, I'm voting this way, they would write, the New York Times would write an article saying uh, that he, an evangelical, endorses such and such candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would want to call myself an evangelical, but I would not want him necessarily to be classified in that same group. Right. You're, you're mm-hmm. looking at him and you're saying, I don't want to be lumped in with him, mm-hmm. but yet the broader public would lump us in together and call us both evangelicals. Yeah. And that's the issue. Right. And I think about it sort of in the way that um, if you've ever heard the saying that uh, an Eskimo has nine different words for snow, mm-hmm. when you're closely associated with things, you can see very minute differences in them, and those differences become extremely important to you. And so you're able to sort of pick out that snow is different from that kind of snow, and that snow is different to that kind of snow. Uh, and for us, uh, we have maybe two different words and that's the second one only exists really if you're like a big skier or snowboarder and then you know there's snow and there's powder Mm -hmm. um but other than that there's for everybody else there's just snow um and so politically speaking people look at pentecostals and neo-evangelicals and in this other group we could put billy graham who would not fit in uh, a standard definition that you or i would give of evangelical but Billy Graham is often seen as sort of like the Pope of evangelicalism. Right. Uh, and so when we look at each other, um, we see pretty big differences from a Billy Graham and what he said were sort of the, the primary tenets of the faith as he espoused it. Um, but people who are, as they move further and further away from Christianity, uh, they get to a point where they cannot tell those minute differences. And again, Billy Graham being a a prime example of the lines getting blurred between his faith Mm -hmm. and his interaction with politics. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, Billy Graham was um, frequently involved in politics and 
often uh, it went poorly for mm-hmm. him. Um, you know, he got a lot of publicity for things like that, but uh, Billy Graham in his autobiography actually said one of his um, biggest regrets was his relationship with Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he staked a lot on backing Nixon. Uh, and then when the tapes of the White House came out, he found out that he did not actually know Nixon as he had thought he had. Yeah. So there's two sides to this. There's, you know, the New York Times being not an Eskimo. Mm-hmm. Um, they look at it and they just call it all snow. Right. Um, they just would see this big lump of people who are not Roman Catholic and they call them all evangelicals. Mm-hmm. That, that's one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin that I think we are more concerned with, um, maybe equally concerned with, is people who self-identify right. as evangelical. So I guess I want to, for the last couple minutes, kind of get at, at that. So um, if I self-identify as evangelical, um, what do we mean by that? And how's that even misunderstood? Um, so if I call myself a zebra, that doesn't necessarily make me a zebra. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where we see the issue with these state of theology questions is people that are, self-identifying as evangelical who clearly holds to non-evangelical theological positions. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, you know, there's considerable discussion uh, around that question of of what is an evangelical? How do we define it? Um, And there are, are, you know, several different positions on this. One book that's really great, it's by Carl Truman, and it's called The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And um, just so you know, for all those people who cannot see us because it's a podcast, um, the book Drew is currently holding is actually very small. Tiny, actually. So compared to other books we often recommend, this is a very readable one. So in, in this book, he essentially um, argues that, you know, that the word evangelical is kind of like the Easter bunny. Um, it doesn't exist. I'm going to read a quote from the, the first chapter Uh, He says this, he says, Santa Claus, unicorns, Batman, and drinkable American tea, he's British, Um, drinkable American tea are all words or phrases that despite their seeming reality have no true reference point. Uh, He goes on in, in this book to essentially argue that the word evangelical means so many different things to so many different people that we should just stop using the term altogether. Um, and, and there's some merit to that. I, I think I, I resonate with that a little bit. Um, but I also, part of me really wants to hold on to the word because it is useful to distinguish what we understand to be the true gospel from something different than that. And, and the so, meaning of it is really important. Like, right. we want to be gospel people. Exactly. So, yeah. I think in light of that, um, I'm advocating not dispensing with the term, but better defining it. And and so, uh, there are great definitions uh, out there. I think Thomas Kidd gives a good definition in his book. Um, but one that, that I've found the most helpful is by a guy named David Bebbington. And um, it's known as the Bebbington Quadrilateral, um, which is just a fancy word for that he sees four distinguishing characteristics of what an evangelical is. In 1989, uh, he's wrestling with the same question that that we're wrestling with today. Um, He's looking around and he's saying, um, 
not all of these look the same, and yet they're being called evangelical. Well, what is an evangelical? So in 1989, he writes a book called Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, a history from the 1730s to the 1980s. And in this book, he argues for four main qualities which should be used in defining evangelical convictions and attitudes. And so the four things that he says are these. Number one, cruciocentrism, or a focus on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. So um, believing that without the cross, uh, our faith is in vain, uh, that, that you know Jesus wasn't just a good example but there was something forensic or real um, that happened when Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sin. So, cruciocentrism, cross at the center, that's number one. Um, Biblicism, or a particular regard for the Bible um, as an essential spiritual truth in all of its pages. So, inerrancy, infallibility of of the Bible, um, that it's true in every single way on every single page. Third, conversionism. Um, so, again, the belief that, that human beings need to be converted or regenerated or born again. Um, and then fourth, activism. So, the belief that the gospel needs to be expressed in effort. So, if we believe this, we will actually live our lives in light of it. So, he defines evangelical as those four things. So, if you don't hold to the inerrancy of scripture, he would say you shouldn't call yourself an evangelical. If you don't believe that the cross is central... Um, and specifically the atoning penal substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. If you don't believe in that, you shouldn't call yourself an evangelical. If you don't believe in the need for conversion, you shouldn't call yourself an evangelicalism. And if you don't live it out in sharing the gospel and living your life um, in a gospel-centered way, you shouldn't call yourself an evangelical. And, you know, you could quibble with whether those words should or shouldn't be included, but I think that's a helpful grid um, and these four things get at a lot of the things that we will be pointing out over the next 35 weeks, where someone that calls themselves an evangelical and then answers a question in a way that would disagree with those four things. Um, and so I, I find that that definition really helpful. And um, I don't know, any other thoughts you have on that? Yeah, I wanted to read uh, this quote from Kid because he makes a really good point about um, self-identification, and specifically when we come across the word evangelical uh, outside of a theological context. Um, so Kidd writes, Since the 1980 election, the public image of white evangelicals has been dominated by the work of the Republican insiders. Many polls about evangelicals allow a category only for whites. This means that evangelical is often coded directly as white in the news in spite of the racial diversity within evangelical and Pentecostal ranks. Black Protestants are often given a separate category, while Hispanic Protestants sometimes get no category at all. Many surveys also depend upon self-identification alone in order to identify evangelicals or born-again believers. So one of the things he's pointing out there is that you have a bunch of people who are given, they're asked to define themselves religiously. On a census. On a census, and they're given a bunch of options to check off. And he says, well, one is that you get this weird view because you actually don't have an option for black or Hispanic evangelicals. Hmm. It's black Protestants or Hispanic, uh, usually Christian, rather than, say, Catholic first Protestant. Mm -hmm. And then 
within that, evangelicals is often directly stated as white evangelical. So you have this weird thing that takes place where you're lumping these people together um, primarily based off of voting patterns rather than theological assessment. And since it's self-identification, you're hoping that the person understands themselves and understands the definition of those words the same mm-hmm. way, uh, which as we'll see when we go throughout the series and one of the things we're going to be doing is mentioning uh, these particular evangelical beliefs um, in our services and talking about first, how many people misunderstand them and second, how we ought to view them to be appropriately evangelical, to be gospel people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just the fact of the matter is so many people misunderstand these terms that, that to view evangelicalism through the lens of politics is to, to completely misunderstand it. Right. And I think uh, there's a whole nother subject, but uh, I think that's why in recent history we see so many things being called gospel-centered mm-hmm. because they're, they're wanting to hold on to these beliefs we've been talking about, but without calling themselves evangelical because they realize it's so confusing. And so we get, oh, those are go- that's a gospel-centered church. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and because the word evangelical now has such a burden, Kidd also writes this a couple of pages after the quote I read. He says, evangelicals carry an additional burden that their political behavior is constantly scrutinized, yet they no longer control the definition and perceived composition of their movement. Polls and media coverage centered on political behavior define evangelicalism for many Americans. Yeah, Um, because it's been co-opted by things. And I think, you know, if it hasn't already, we'll probably see that with the word gospel-centered too. Mm -hmm. Um, I I can say we have already seen Mm -hmm. it. We see gospel-centered become more of a marketing slogan right. than an actual theological statement. And mm-hmm. so I think this is something we, we always will struggle with, how what we call ourselves, how we categorize people with, with different non-gospel beliefs. Um, one of my favorite books in the whole world is a book called Evangelicalism Divided, um, a record of crucial change in the years 1950 to 2000. That's a, a mouthful, but uh, main title, Evangelicalism Divided by Ian H. Murray. Um, and the point, I hope you guys understand, like this is an ongoing discussion that's been going on for years about what is an evangelical, what does it mean to be an evangelical? And so I think just in closing, one thing I would love to discuss is, uh, is Carl Truman right? Should we stop using the word or is it still beneficial and useful? And so for, for me... Um, I say yes and no, that, uh, I try not to use that word unless I'm able to clearly define it. Mm-hmm. Um, that just in regular conversation, um, I don't specifically with those who are not Christians, I don't call myself an evangelical mm-hmm. because I know that there's so much confusion around the word. But, uh, if I'm having a theological discussion, um, and I'm able to define what I mean by evangelical very clearly, mm-hmm. um, I'm happy to use the word. Right. I'm happy to claim myself as an evangelical um, if I get to define it or if I, I get to use Bevington's definition of it, which I find helpful. And I think that's important, uh, that we be careful not to throw labels on ourselves that are confusing or that are undefined in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is 
is to simply say that in order to properly use the term evangelical or really any of these uh, sort of terms, whether it's fundamentalist or even Christian, is we have to know what we believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we don't know what we believe and we can't articulate it, then really we shouldn't be calling ourselves anything. Right. So this weekend we're going to dive into this topic. Um, We're going to be looking at Mark 8, 22 through 30, where Peter gets straight up asked the question, who do you say that I am? Uh, and or for, for before that, they, the disciples get asked the question, who do people say that I am? Mm-hmm. Well, some say you're this, some say you're that, but who do you say that I am? And I think that's the crux of the matter, um, is who do we say that Jesus is? And um, we're going to see some confusion by quote-unquote evangelicals mm-hmm. on even that question. Right. Um, and so... We, we hope to use the state of theology as a helpful tool um, over the next several weeks to help us understand what does the scripture say about these questions and what do evangelicals believe about these things. Um, so we're grateful for you guys listening, and we will see you back here next week. If you have questions about evangelicalism or anything else, feel free to reach out at office at santacruzbaptist.com. See you next week.